Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is the student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on these issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. On January 6th, thousands of pro-Trump riders assaulted the United States Capitol to protest the results of the election. Holding Confederate flags and donning neo-Nazi clothing, many insurrectionists openly touted their white supremacist ties. Five people died, including one police officer and four riders, making it the deadliest attack on the Capitol since the War of 1812. The riots come after a years-long rise in white supremacist attacks, including those at El Paso, Pittsburgh, and Charlottesville. The Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, identified that white supremacists were responsible for more killings in 2018 and 2019 than any other type of attacker. Now, law enforcement agencies are finally shifting gears to focus on domestic violence. The DHS issued its first federal alert warning the public of heightened domestic threat following the Capitol riots. Nearly 500 rioters remain at large, and the House of Representatives even canceled a planned session in early March after warnings of a potential violent threat. As the United States grapples with the aftermath of the Capitol riots, Dr. Daniel Byman, professor at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, joined Gugia on February 22, 2021, to break down the drivers of the growing white supremacy movement and its future in the United States. He also highlights the movement's increasingly globalized nature and shares recommendations for how the United States and its allies should respond. Dr. Daniel Byman is also a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings and a foreign policy editor at Lawfare. I want to start off by asking, like, why now has white supremacy become so much more prevalent? So we've seen white supremacist threats in the past, but it seems that in light of the Capitol riots, this extremism has garnered much greater concern in the U.S. and abroad. So what factors do you think are causing this movement to become so much more dangerous? So the movement's been kind of dangerous and then less dangerous and dangerous and less dangerous. So it's been kind of ups and downs in recent years. Uh, decades, if you want to say that. Um, so uh, I would say a couple things are going on that have led to it being of concern to me, at least. Uh, so one thing is that in the last five years, we've seen it become more lethal than several other forms of terrorism. So just in terms of focus, a lot of what we cared about 15 years ago, various jihadist movements, they've become, um, efforts to fight them have become more successful, at least in the United States. And so by comparison, some of the white supremacist anti-government extremists have risen. So uh, part of it is just a kind of relative comparison. Um, of course, we've seen these groups do very bloody attacks. So we saw this with uh, the Tree of Life attack. We saw this with the Walmart attack. Um, so there have been a couple of attacks that were very, very prominent. Uh, but a big thing is um, these movements are more interwoven with US domestic politics. And of course, we saw this on January 6th with the storming of the Capitol, where it's not as if um, the people storming the Capitol were part of kind of mainstream politics, 
but they were encouraged by the president of the United States. And uh, there were several elected officials um, who have been supportive of them. We've seen rhetoric afterward from various state legislatures that have been supportive. So I would say a big difference is that some of the groups um, have uh, ties or at least echoes in mainstream political debates. And that changes how we think of them and it makes them um, a concern beyond the lives lost. It makes them a political concern as well. Yeah, and touching on this political, political concern. So Trump really kind of, I guess from what you said, kind of instigated these riots. So do you think that with Trump out of office, office like white extremism might erode or was, or should we expect to see like similar attacks like the Capitol rise in the future? Like what's so, the future of white supremacy? So we, we don't know, of course, right? So there are one thing that uh, with Trump out of office, there'll be a major player who will not be encouraging them. Uh, but at the same time, large numbers of Americans, not just extremists, but large numbers of Americans think the election of Joe Biden was illegitimate. And that's a very powerful motivating force, uh, either for doing violence or at least for tolerating it. So you have a lot of people who are very skeptical and aggrieved at the current government. Uh, but making us all a bit more complex is the federal government is um, already more aggressive against these groups than it was several years ago. So when we think of the, there's a question of the threat, but there's also a question of the response to the threat. And that's gonna be a lot more aggressive than it has been in recent years. Some of these groups have gotten kind of a free ride and I think that's much less likely. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier how some of these groups, they're kind of a bit more mainstream. So do you think that despite this sort of partisanship, this like hyper-partisanship on the subject of white supremacy, do you think that might hinder the Biden administration's efforts to curb white extremism? Or do you think that they'll still be able to effectively respond to this threat? I think they'll still be able to effectively respond. And I, I believe they'll have the support of the vast majority of Republicans uh, doing so. So I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful on this. Um, but that said, there's an overlap where white supremacy begins and where the kind of anti-government groups um, start is an open question. There's a lot of overlap in these communities. Um, and a lot of their agenda is linked to things like, um, you know, the Stop the Steal, for example, um, protesting the results of the election, which are shared well outside extremist circles. So I think there'll be support for going after the most extreme versions. And I, I certainly hope the kind of most racist types. Uh, but that said, um, a lot of the groups are really just networks of individuals. And it's gonna be hard to go after that without touching on some of the more mainstream issues that these networks champion. Yeah, so switching gears to more social media and white supremacy, mm -hmm. following the Capitol riots, authorities in Germany actually tightened security around their parliament out of fear that similar far-right groups in Germany might get inspired. And then an analysis by the New York Times also illustrates that one third of white extremist attacks across the globe were inspired by similar attacks. So in light of this increasing amount of facilitation of white supremacy through the internet, how do you think the government or social media companies should respond? Uh, so social media companies, the good news is they've actually been much more aggressive in recent years, right? So obviously the deplatforming of President Trump is one very notable example, but um, in terms of the most extreme groups, we've seen a lot of them kicked off 
uh, Twitter. We've seen um, Facebook take efforts to go after some of these groups, um, YouTube and so on. So there's been real progress in how these companies treat these groups when you compare that to four or five years ago. Um, that said, it's extremely hard. So if you look at, for example, the Christchurch attack where 51 people were killed when an extremist had attacked two mosques, uh, Facebook was really aggressive in trying to take that down and really responded quickly and so on. Uh, that said, uh, the internet's the internet and um, the manifesto, the video of the attack, these things were widely viewed and it was very hard to stop them. So I think that it's gonna be a constant struggle, but the good news is, I think the technology companies are much more willing to engage in this than they were three or four years ago. Yeah, so going along this sort of theme that there's much more cross-national like facilitation white supremacy, there's also been reports of Americans physically traveling to far-right groups, camps in Ukraine, or German neo-Nazis traveling to the United States, and so forth. So how dangerous do you think these cross-national ties actually are? And how do you think the US and their allies should respond? So the cross-national ties are pretty dangerous, right? When someone goes to a war zone like Ukraine to train, they can become more lethal. They can get networked and connected to a lot of other individuals they might not otherwise know. They can become more diehard in their beliefs. So there are a lot of concerns. Um, however, if you are watching for this, there are a lot of ways you can stop it. Um, and intelligence cooperation, law enforcement cooperation globally is very important here. Um, and sometimes these people commit crimes when they're doing this. So there's a lot of opportunities to disrupt this sort of activity. And if you look at the jihadist side of this, um, 25 years ago, people traveling abroad to fight was a huge problem and a huge source of terrorism. Uh, and it's still a concern, but the counterterrorism has gotten so much better that when people go abroad to fight, they're much more likely to be caught. And, it, and actually, even when they are, they're much more likely to reveal the existence of lots of other people that the government didn't know about. So it's potential danger, but it's also potential vulnerability for the group uh, if the government is aggressive. And so do you think that the Biden administration and its allies are switching gears and taking some of these approaches? Or are they, like in the past, you mentioned how we haven't really been concentrated as much. So in your view, like, do you think the Biden administration is taking like the right steps so far? Well, it hasn't really begun, right? So for example, uh, Merrick Garland right now is going through confirmation hearings for attorney general, right? And that will be one of the most important positions for this. And he said, one of my priorities is gonna be domestic terrorism, right? So that's encouraging, but he's still being confirmed, right? So it's relatively early in the administration. So I think it's too early to tell but I would say the rhetoric is very encouraging, right? If you look at what they're saying, that's promising, but you know they have to follow that up. Yeah. So in terms of like, if you were to nail down a couple of policy recommendations for the administration to combat domestic terrorism, what would you tell them that they should do now that the past governments have not done before? So part of it is just resourcing. Right. Um, a lot of these groups are very vulnerable, but you need FBI agents, you need law enforcement, you need a whole host of people willing to go after them. And so part of it's resourcing. Uh, part of it is treating it very seriously. So right now, um, a lot of these groups commit low-level crimes, uh, and they're kind of ignored because there's a focus on high-level violence. But if you're trying to go after a network, you can go after the low-level crimes and really start to put pressure on the movement as a whole. 
Um, and so to me, there's a lot you can do if you uh, treat them more aggressively. So those are two things I'd mentioned that I think can achieve a lot. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, and in terms of, like you mentioned how there's a lot of low level groups as well as some, maybe some more organized, like I'm trying to picture here, what is like the composition of these white supremacist groups? It seems to me that there are some who are just like, you know, loners out there doing their own thing. And then maybe there's some like more organized units like, how should we think of this? So there certainly are a few more organized groups, but they're generally, uh, most of the organized violent groups have been shut down or are relatively small. But it tends to be lots of individuals um, operating as far as networks, often via social media, encouraging other people. And some of those people turn violent. So if you look at the people who did the Walmart shooting, the Tree of Life shooting, the uh, Black Church in Charleston, um, where worshipers were killed. Uh, those were all inspired individuals, not people who were part of groups. So I think that's where the real danger is. And that's in some ways a harder challenge. Uh, groups can achieve a lot more. They tend to be more capable and more dangerous, but they're also easier to detect. And the individuals are really hard to find and as a result, hard to stop. So in your view, we should be really thinking like actively monitoring and checking for these more low level threats because oftentimes they're not necessarily associated with some of these larger organizations, but. Uh, that's right, but they're, but they're very vulnerable. If you're watching the networks, they're pretty visible, mm -hmm. right? And you can see people. So it's, it's still hard, but if you're going after them more aggressively, you'll, you'll, more will turn up. This was 37th and the World. Thank you to Professor Daniel Byman and her interviewer, Claire Wang. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out jagia.georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening, and see you next time, where we will be discussing Pakistani foreign policy with Mr. Michael Kugelman.